from Micah 6. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think that we all encounter some difficult situations with people who are in need. Sometimes as a pastor, I encounter a person who comes to the church asking for help. And it is especially difficult when I've seen this person before and helped them on multiple occasions with the same thing. Maybe you drive the same way each day and stop at the same intersection and the same person is there day after day, week after week, flying a sign and asking for help. You're not sure what to do. The voices in your head tell you conflicting things about giving money or not giving money, and you feel stuck. You might have a family member who just can't seem to get it together. They make promises that by this point you know they're not going to keep. They might say they'll pay you back, but it's been years and years of this type of behavior. In all these situations, we feel like we are in a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. Oftentimes, we listen to Jesus in Matthew 25, reminding us, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. But we also have this sinking feeling with these repeat episodes and we feel stuck. If I help this person, I know they're going to be back and need help. And if I don't help this person, I feel like a soulless and privileged person, stuck. Our response as faith communities and as area nonprofits and as a broader community has often been to band together so that we can more effectively help people. This is a great impulse. On my own, I cannot affect the same type of change. On our own, as a church, we can't affect the same type of change that an organization like Dorcas Ministries can here and carry. And a lot of the work that churches do to help those in need would fall under what we call charity. Charity simply implies giving to someone. Charity doesn't expect anything in return. Charity is, so we've been taught, always good. Charity stems from generosity, after all. So we give food, we give clothing, we give money. But when we take a broader look at it, as many charitable organizations have done recently, it can start to feel like we're spinning our wheels. The same people coming through the same line over and over again. We and the people that we charitably serve feel stuck. And part of the issue, I think, and what we're going to look at during this many weeks together is how we define poverty. 
Most of us sitting in this room define poverty very simply. It means living below the poverty line. It means not having enough income to be self-sufficient. So we who have means define poverty strictly as a material problem. Resources are scarce, so someone needs help getting the resources. If we get them resources, that solves the problem, or so we think. But when people who are poor around the world describe poverty, they describe it as a lack of far more than material resources. They often describe a feeling of powerlessness and a lack of agency in their own lives. They might describe humiliation and being poor for life just because of the situation that they were born into. Now there is no question, and I'm not going to question for a second, that Jesus calls us to help care for those who are in need. That is never the question I'm asking throughout this series. The bigger question that I want us to think about and ponder together as a church community and as disciples of Jesus is this. How is Jesus calling us to care for those in need? Hear me. I'm not saying whether or not Jesus calls us to care for those in need. He definitely does. Probably calls us each to do more than we're doing already to care for those in need. But the, the, the specific question I want to grapple with that we're not going to solve in one 15-minute message in one day is how is Jesus calling us to help care for those who are in need? Many of us know the adage, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. In this saying, we recognize the power of moving beyond charity. That sometimes a person needs a meal right then and there, but without the means of employment or different relationships or affordable and safe housing or whatever barriers exist in the way, that that person will also need a fish tomorrow. Teaching people to fish is good. That is a very important part of what we're going to be talking about together, that idea about empowerment. But I would like to take it a step further. I believe that God is calling us to help create a just world. After all, each week we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And a just world doesn't only teach people how to fish. In a just world, we also ask questions like, well, who owns the pond? Why does this pond have less fish in it than the other pond in town? What rules are there that prevent everyone from fishing in the pond? And these are questions about justice. And justice is not just a side doctrine for some people in church to care about. No, justice is central to what it means to follow Jesus. Justice is part and parcel of the character of our God. This passage in Micah 6 is one of the key passages in the Old Testament about how God expects us to live. You might say that Micah 6, 8, where he says, do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with God, could have been Jesus' answer to what is the most important commandment, instead of him quoting, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So let's talk about this scripture. Micah begins in verses 6 and 7 by asking questions about the sacrificial system. He begins with questions that seem honest and earnest. Should I, be, should I come before God with entirely burned offerings, like what Leviticus tells me to do? And should I come with year-old calves? And the implicit answer for a Jewish person is, well, of course, yes, you should. 
That's what God says to do. But then Micah moves into a sarcastic tone that we might not catch when we're reading scripture because we're not too good at reading sarcasm in our scripture. Because after he says, should I come before God with a year old calf? He says, well, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? In other words, when is enough enough? Does God really want all of these animals sacrificed? Is that what this is all about? Then he asks, should I bring torrents of oil? So much so that the oil would overwhelm and flood over the altar. And we say, of course not. That's not what this is about. And Micah takes it a step further. He says, how about my own child? Should I bring my own child to the altar and sacrifice them to atone for my sins? And maybe you didn't catch it because it just sounded like a scripture reading. But that's literally what the text says. And besides the Abraham-Isaac story, the one example we have of God asking for a child on the altar, the answer is a resounding no. The God of Israel values life. And child sacrifice was practiced by other nations and abhorred by the God of Israel. So then Micah changes course and answers the question he posed at first. Well, if it's not thousands of rams and torrents of oil and my first child, with what shall I come before the Lord my God? And then he says, he has shown you, human one, what the Lord requires and what is good, to do justice, to embrace faithful love, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't know about you, but when I read that simple verse, I feel like it kind of sums it all up. Other versions say, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And I want to talk about those two words, justice and mercy, and their place in the Bible. Oftentimes, they're held together in the scripture, in the Psalms, and in plenty of other passages in the prophets. Justice is used throughout the Old Testament in multiple ways. Its basic meaning is treating people equitably. So people should have the same standards and opportunities. It's where our understanding of the legal system and its symbol of the scale could come from, right? Where the sides are supposed to equal out and be balanced. But the biblical word for justice also means giving people their rights. Justice, then, is not just a reactive word, seeking correct punishment for someone's behavior. It's also a proactive word, seeking people's rights. When it's used in Scripture over and over the concern of justice, it's the concern for people who are on the margins, the most powerless in society. In the Old Testament, orphans and widows, the immigrants and the poor, justice seeks rights for those people. Mercy, or faithful love, is that word that describes the covenant love of God, the steadfast love of the Lord, that unconditional love of God. We, in turn, are able to live out and embody that steadfast love of God when we have received it. So to do justice and embrace faithful love means that we do the justice. We work for equal rights for all people out of this deep covenant love from God and for God. Now, unfortunately, over the last 150 years or so in the American church, social justice has gotten separated from the practices of individual piety. Oftentimes, churches that self-identify as conservative are concerned with evangelism and saving souls. They teach about Bible study and personal prayer. And oftentimes, churches that self-identify as progressive are concerned with issues around social justice. 
They often speak about topics like race and poverty and encourage their members to join the fight. Now, you might be sitting here wondering, what type of church then is Macedonia? How do we self-identify, preacher? And my answer is this. Are you ready? We are United Methodist. And from our founding, John Wesley cared deeply about personal piety. He taught and preached about growing in our relationship with Jesus, practicing spiritual disciplines, and growing in holiness. But Wesley also stated there is no holiness without social holiness. So Wesley's movement was deeply concerned for the poor and the marginalized. He preached outdoors to the mining workers and their families who could not make it on Sunday morning because of their work conditions. He encouraged a visitation and care for prisoners. He ended up speaking out for the abolition of slavery when convinced by William Wilberforce. This is a large part, friends, of why I am United Methodist, that we believe in personal and social holiness. We believe, like Jesus said, it is important to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. We believe that God calls us to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. This might sound simple to understand, and it should be. So do I believe in sharing the good news of Jesus with others? Yes, 100%. By that definition, I'm an evangelical. And do I believe in making the world equitable and just, and just for all? Yes. By that definition in America today, I'm a liberal. And friends, that is stupid. Stupid. These things cannot be separated. The good news of Jesus is that Jesus sets us free from the powers of sin and death and then calls us to live out and embody that freedom for all people. The good news is not only about my own salvation with Jesus, it is also about the entire world's salvation in Jesus. If people are stuck in poverty and feel trapped with no way out, then we are not truly living out the good news. We do justice because God does justice. God embodies justice not just in his activity, but in who God sides with. The first scripture we heard today from Jeremiah 9, I am the Lord who acts with kindness, justice, and righteousness in the world, and I delight in these things. Kindness and justice, the same words for mercy and faithful love and justice held together in how God acts in the world. In other places in the Old Testament, God binds God's very self, his identity, to the poor. He calls himself the father of orphans and the defender of widows in Psalm 68.5. God takes up the cause of the poor and the vulnerable. It doesn't just mean that we in turn should have concern for the poor. No, it means that we identify with the poor. It means that the problems that I brought up in the beginning today, those of not knowing how to help or what exactly to do, truly haunt us. We feel stuck because we know that God calls us to love the poor. We feel stuck because we recognize that we also are poor and that God loves us and loves every single person made in God's image. Social justice is held together in scripture with this term righteousness. 
It means that all relationships are conducted with fairness and generosity and equity. This is the level of justice that asks questions about who owns the pond, and it seeks to do something about it. Friends, the reason why this series of sermons is important is because this is hard. For those of us who can afford to, giving away money to the poor or to an organization is relatively easy. It even makes us feel good, and we can move on our merry way. But when we allow our hearts to be open to God and broken with God's heart, then we enter into the fray of a longing for justice. We start to ask questions about why people of color are so much more prevalent in the prison system than others. We ask questions about why some schools in the same county with the same funding seem to be so much worse than the other schools. We ask questions about how people can afford to live here as property values skyrocket when they make far below what is a living wage. These questions are hard. They do not have easy answers or solutions. But that does not mean they are bad questions. They are really good questions. And Jesus calls us to ask them, to wrestle with them, and to join his work of creating a world that seeks justice for all. I pray that you would be open to how God is calling you into the important work of justice as his disciple. Let us pray. Lord, we hear that word justice, and for some of us it conjures up images of a courtroom or a jail. But Lord, you are the God of justice. You are the God who sides constantly with those who are on the margins, seeking equal opportunities for all people. You are the God who comes in the flesh so that we might have relationship with you and so that all can be brought into relationship with you. For Lord, you promise us that you were not willing that any should perish. You promise us that God so loved the world, all people, that he gave us his son. So Lord, I pray that in these coming weeks, as we think and ponder these things, that you would open our hearts. Open our hearts to break with the things that break yours. Open our hearts to love the people you love. God, and open our minds so that we might be able to hear and know what it is that you would call us to do, both as individuals and as a church family. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.